0: I think one of the challenges with professional development is sometimes we it's like we pick from a menu of things and there isn't actually like do we need that is that is that a problem that we actually have that we need to address.
1: For me as an external provider uh, that's always a big hurdle. Again I'm the teacher we've done something wrong someone's brought in someone else to tell us how to fix it. I'm not a good person. I think
0: it's time.
2: And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by
3: Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 16th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is All the Above. Your place for news and analysis of all matters related to education. Because we know, like you know, that education does not get the attention that it deserves. Um, Jeff,
2: it's been a minute. It has been a little while. Yeah, yeah. It has been a a, a little while. We've been uh, traipsing, traipsing the country. Traipsing? I believe. Is that a word? It's a word. I've never yes. heard that. It's traveling back and forth.
3: Trapezing, Dope. I yes. guess I don't travel enough to know that. That's dope. All right. My vocabulary just expanded. Uh, that's what we do on All the Above. You know what I'm saying? We you know, build up our vocabulary skills right. and our, our knowledge base for all matters related to education. If you are watching this on YouTube, thank you. If um, you enjoy what you see, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and that thumbs up. We really do appreciate it. And if you're listening to the podcast on the go, thank you for tuning in. Uh, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, five stars are always appreciated because those make a big difference when it comes to the algorithms and all of that so jeff what's on today's agenda
2: oh man well as usual we got a good one um of course you know we have our headlines we got some juicy topics we're gonna get into but i'm i'm really excited yes juicy uh it's a technical term yes uh I'm really excited about our seminar for today because Mm. we have two guests coming in. We have uh, people with just a real wealth of knowledge and experience around a topic that you, Mm. I believe eloquently uh, referred to uh, several episodes back with the term, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> that, I, yeah. that, that being professional development. Yes. Uh, so um, we're going to get into that today with two great guests. We have Karen Brinder Connect, um, who is the Senior Director of uh, School Transformation for Literacy um, mm. for the Partnership for LA Schools. Um, and we have Mark Jataba. Um, who works for WestEd uh, and does not only tons of professional development, but also consulting with schools and districts Indeed. on professional development and how they do professional development all across California and across the country. So mm. uh, it's it's going to be a good conversation. I think this is this is one of those topics that every educator and people in all kinds of fields yeah. have all kinds of feelings about yeah. PD. Uh, so we're going to get into it today. <laughs>
3: All right. Can't wait. But up first, we're going to take a look at some recent headlines in education, particularly some stories that you might have missed. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now, where we take a look at headlines in education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today?
2: Well, Manuel, uh, as responsible educators, it's very Mm. important for us to check for understanding. That is true. Yes. So uh, to make sure you did your homework out there today, Mm. we have a pop quiz. Pop
3: quiz, pop quiz. I'm ready today, Jeff. I'm ready. I studied, you know, had extra time. Thinking caps on, folks. Yeah, yeah. Thinking
2: caps on.
3: All right, Jeff. First quiz question for today.
2: All right. Jeff.
3: Yep. Who in our schools is being hit hard right now by the current housing crisis? Is it students? Is it teachers? Or is it all of the above? oh, oh, oh. You see what i did there jeff
2: i, I saw what you did there man yeah, well i'm gonna you know I, I feel i feel this is one of those times where the teacher's trying to trick you hmm. with a distractor hmm. i'm gonna say a hey, students
3: hmm. well jeff the answer of course is always all of the above
2: that's right uh, <laughs> here
3: on all of the above yes um so this regards a story, um, actually a collection of stories um, coming out of a few different sources related to how housing has impacted students and how it continues to impact uh, teachers as well. So new federal data from the National Center for Homeless Education shows that a record high 1.5 million students were homeless during the 2017 to 2018 school year. That's 11% more than the previous year and nearly double the number from a decade ago. 16 states have seen student homelessness rise 10% or more in the last three years alone. So, Jeff, you may recall we talked about data regarding student homelessness, uh, I think, about a year ago. So yeah. this is like a, a update, and it basically shows that uh, the numbers are continuing to hit new record highs. Yeah. Um, but this comes in tandem with a story out of the LA Times, a story by Steve Lopez, who recently profiled teachers who are entering the profession, so new teachers who are getting their credentials and entering the profession. And um, he basically, in speaking to these teachers, found that especially in California around the Los Angeles area. Their excitement for entering the profession is tapered very much by their worries about how they'll afford rent. And he found that a lot of teachers are having to move away from their communities and their hometowns to find areas that are more affordable for them to live in, uh, to teach. And um, it just looks like the, the Teachers coming into our profession are stressed about how the they, how they could afford um, rent in given our our low compensation for teachers, relatively speaking. And students, of course, are being hit hard in the reality of homelessness and not having stable housing. Jeff, um, what do you make of of all this?
2: Yeah, so I, I find it um, I find it to be one of those issues that's a little bit like a canary in in the mine shaft, so mm. to speak. Right. That uh, we're seeing homelessness on the rise for students, right. which means homelessness is on the rise for families, right? right. Um, and the the sort of ripple effects that that has on kids' ability to learn, kids' ability to focus. You know, what's the impact of that going to be 20 years from now when these kids who spent their time in school, you know, uh, struggling, right, yeah. in this way? are applying to college and trying to get jobs and, you know, trying to raise families of their own. Right. Yeah. Um, And we are also now seeing that because of the just intense economic circumstances in which students and families are struggling, those same forces are, you know, are having a, a sort of depressing impact Uh, on the teaching staff, right? And we see teacher shortages across the country, right? And people making, you know, there's a, a complex set of reasons for that, right? But But there's an economic reality of saying, like, if I know I'm going to graduate from, you know, Cal State Northridge or UCLA or any of the local colleges and go into teaching and a first year teacher salary in Los Angeles uh, in L.A. Unified is about fifty three thousand dollars. Right. Right. You are a struggling individual in L.A. making $53,000, yeah. right? Like, you're going to need a roommate in order to find any decent housing, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, to to be able to have that be your sort of economic situation, right? Or you're going to have to move back in with your family or something, right? Um, and compare that to what's possible in some other fields. Like, we've set up a set of conditions that's discouraging people from entering the profession. Yeah. It's making it harder for kids and families, to, uh, you know, to even manage and survive. Um, and I think what we're, I think what it speaks to is the larger construct within which we're operating, right? Which is an economy that's just not working for a strongest larger, economy
3: ever, Jeff, strongest economy. Strongest record, black, low African-American unemployment.
2: Unemployment among the blacks, the blacks, I believe is the technical term. <laughs> it's record lows, Jeff. Yes. Uh, and you know that you're in touch with the community because you call them the blacks
3: well it's, indeed
2: it's how we all love to be referred to um, um but yes that that's what i think what yeah. uh, tell
3: us your thoughts so um One thing I actually wanted to um, touch on is that, with regards to the homelessness crisis, um, it seems that I am hearing more commonly uh, folks without homes being referred to as houseless rather than homeless, which Mm. uh, makes me think about how in Los Angeles, a lot of these families who do not have houses, they are still together, intact, living with relatives or living out of a car, unfortunately. And that home is still intact. The house is what's missing. So, uh, shout out to those of you who are pushing our thinking about how we uh, speak about folks who are struggling and who are facing this, this crisis. Uh, one thing that stands out in this in the federal data is that the overall, although the overall um, number of, of houseless students is, is on the rise, the number who are living on their own, however, the, living, the number who are living without uh, guardians and who are really out there on their own, um, that's risen by nearly 17% to more than 129,000 students. So 129,000 students across the country who are living not in the house, not with family, and who are truly struggling. And that, to me, that's the, I, just, I mean, it's unimaginable to, for me to think about a teenager who's, who's literally out there on their own. And it reminds me of our, our previous guest, Aaron Whalen, and the school that he co-founded um, that helps this, uh, this population, among others. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really tragic. The economy might look strong from certain perspectives, but clearly it is not, and clearly there is work to be done. Um, Spoiler alert, the students who do not have stable housing, their uh, test scores tend to be um, quite a bit lower than students who have stable housing. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the report noted that only 29% of, of, of houseless students perform proficiently in reading language arts, which is 8.5% fewer than other low-income students. Of course, test scores are, um, not the greatest concern here, but it just, you know, goes without saying that this is an added struggle for students who are trying to learn and trying to, um, make their way through
2: our society. Yeah. Yeah. I think that just the final thing I would add is that, um, You know, in in these articles, um, what was also described was the interesting kind of expansion of the challenge of houselessness, Mm -hmm. right, among students. So we're sort of used to thinking about like, well, L.A. has, you know, like Skid Row and, you know, New York City and Chicago and Philadelphia, like big cities have have homelessness problems, right? but we're seeing, you know, rural areas, suburban areas, right? We're seeing a, a pretty broad expansion, some yeah. of which having to do with things like the opioid crisis, right? right, like right. Or students being impacted by the ripple effect of that, um, you know, or mass incarceration and other things that create conditions where students have to leave a home, even right. if they, you know, theoretically have one, right? So it's the, it's, I think it's the compounding effect of that that makes these numbers we're seeing particularly uh, concerning um, as we think about the breadth of impact of this across the entire country. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, what's the next pop quiz question for today? All right, man. Well, next up question for you. How do students today feel about high school? Hmm. Well, as a current
3: classroom teacher who teaches out of high school, um, based on my students, um, I would have to say they feel fantastic because everybody loves being in Dr. Russin's room. It's just fantastic. So I'm going to go with fantastic.
2: I mean, that's definitely one answer certainly okay uh, and i'm not i'm not saying i get the sense that I'm not, that's not the that answer. your students don't feel that way i've i've been to dr Rustin's classroom it, it is a fantastic place to be uh unfortunately the reality is uh the, the better answer for this yeah. this is one of those ones where like the most know, correct a answer. is the most correct yeah. answer and a is terrible just absolutely oh, terrible. Man. So let's get into this. Um, in a nationwide survey of uh, over twenty one thousand uh, United States high school students, researchers from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, uh, Emotional Intelligence, and the Yale Child Study Center found that nearly seventy five percent, so three out of four, of the students self reported feelings related to school were negative. Right. Uh, this is this is alarming. Um, so uh, it was higher than expected, said uh, the co-author and research scientist Zorana Ivechevich, which is a fantastic name. And I hope I said that correctly. Um, and she's referring to the the rate, the high rates of responses of students reporting negative emotions right, being right. higher than expected. Um, we know from talking to students that they are feeling tired, stressed and bored, but we're surprised by how overwhelming it was. Um, the has also found that all demographic groups reported mostly negative feelings about school, but girls were slightly more negative than boys. Uh, so, you know, I think on some level, Manuel, like... Teenagers are known for being angsty and critical of things, and yeah. you know, you're ruining my life, mom. And like, why do you hate me? <laughs> is that <laughs> right? what teenagers sound like? Yeah, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> that, that's exact. Yes, that's how that's how they sound. Um, but you know, there's sort of the stereotype of like the disgruntled yeah, yeah. teenager that's trying to figure out life, and it's just a difficult phase, right? Right. But I think this data is something. Beyond the stereotype, right? Yeah. So, tell us, tell us, Doctor Rustin, with the happy classroom, what's what's going on here?
3: Yeah. So this is seventy-five percent of students um, self-reporting that their feelings about school are negative. Seventy-five percent. So my students are the other, are within the other twenty-five percent. Just yeah, want to put that exactly. out there, just facts. Um, but no, it's it's really an overwhelming number. Of, they broke down, you know, the report, which we'll link on our website, Um broke down the responses and, and some of the, in the, within the open-ended responses, the most common emotion that students reported was, was feeling tired. Um, 79.83% reported feeling stressed. I think that this is more than the usual teenagers not liking school situation Mm -hmm. these numbers are extremely high and this is a survey of over twenty-one thousand students and i think that in all of our discussion about education and all of our discussion about how to uh, boost student achievement and student outcomes across the nation and we look at you know how we compare with other nations and and all that stuff i think something that's lost is just the 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 foundational question of Mm -hmm. do students even like being here, because if they don't like it, I don't care what you put in front of them, you're going to have challenges and you're going to have a problem. And I think when it comes to teacher PD, which we'll be discussing in the next seminar. Uh, Most of the PD that I've experienced has not had anything to do with how to help students feel better about school. It's mostly been on instructional methods that are geared towards boosting uh, reading and math uh, skills and things like that, which are obviously very, very, very important. But we're kind of missing the boat here if we are not even thinking about do students even enjoy what we're delivering. And and part of the, the, The response to that for me personally, of course, is to make sure my my curriculum and my uh, pedagogy is responsive to student needs and interests, which I think a lot of really great educators do. But I also think this is emblematic of a larger problem that we are facing that we still don't fully understand which is the problems associated with um greater and greater connectivity between people and between teenagers through their phones and of course the internet and I know I'm gonna sound like old head here saying that social media is to blame for this but I think
2: okay boomer
3: I think there is a lot to be said for this idea that students I mean this is my 16th year in the classroom the students that I have now they they it's it's a different sense that I get from them than the yeah. students who I had when I first entered, and a lot of it has to do with just how they process and how they think, and where their attention is. And I don't know that we yet know the full ramifications of the the speed with which we have dived into this hyper connected world.
2: Yeah. So I I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. I do wonder, though, uh, because what was not really captured uh, in the data set, uh, from Yale here was like longitudinal comparison data. And I'm not sure. Yeah, if that is that, true. Yeah. That's available. Cause there is a part of me that just says like, well, maybe the stereotype is right. And teenagers yeah. are just disgruntled and maybe, you know, three quarters of them being disgruntled right. is like better than it used to be. Yeah. Right? Maybe it used <laughs> so to be like 85% or no, you know, yeah, I, No, you're I right. No, yeah. my, my gut, is that that's not true though right right? my gut is that like it's probably a little more negative than it used to be right partially because the stakes of high school i think have have been risen for this generation and for even more even recent uh generations a little bit older than our current students contrary to the uh you know i think the kind of common um critiques of you know millennials and and younger Yeah, that they're sort of only motivated by instant gratification and they don't want to work hard. I think we have a lot of data that suggests they're actually being asked to work much harder. Right. And they're actually doing harder academic work. Um, We're sending more of them to college. The competitiveness of college is vastly higher uh, than it used to be. Right. While the cost is higher than it used to be. And while the stakes of getting in and going are greater than they used to be, right? So they're operating at a context that I think is much more uh, potentially stressful in terms of like everything you do, if you're in this club or if you're not in this club or if you're president of the club or if you're just vice president of the club, like that could be the difference between getting in or not getting in, right? So I think there's that. Uh, kind of context that I would imagine about this. And I do think what you're alluding to, uh, even though it was, you know, slightly boomer ish, but I'm not uh, a boomer, but still, <laughs> no. I'll take it. But this idea of the social isolation that comes yeah. along with a deeply embedded culture of social, of like online existence yeah. where you're, where, you know, we do have data to suggest like you just don't get the feelings of connection that are real right. from, you know, Instagram that comes from having an actual friend and sitting next to that friend and being able to talk through something when you're having a hard time or just, you know, sitting and laughing. Right. Yeah. Um, that the connection and the sense of calm and well-being that you get is not the same. And we have kids that are growing up in that context and, and like maybe are not even necessarily conscious of it. Right. Yeah. Of what they might be missing.
3: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I'm really interested in seeing what these numbers were in the past. Um, We're going to throw this report on our website and uh, if we could find some um the previous iterations of the survey then we'll throw those up there as well so uh, but for now jeff we have one last quiz question and um
2: i do want to just give one quick shout out though because the yale um uh, Child Study Center and the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence are doing some really dope work. So mm-hmm. I encourage people to click on that link, mm-hmm. check out some of the stuff they're doing. I think a lot for of sure. educators, a lot of educators, will be really interested in learning about what they're discovering.
3: For sure, for sure. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Last question for today's do now. Hmm. This is a great one. This is my favorite question, actually. Okay. Um, Jeff, who is everyone's best friend on campus?
2: Well, that answer is obvious, and it is obvious because there are two answers. Hmm. The first answer is the secretary in the main office. The Hmm. second answer is the custodian, or if you're out here in California, Hmm. the plant manager. Those are the two answers. (laughs) If you are a teacher or a principal or anyone in the school, you better recognize that immediately.
3: Well, yeah, uh, for the teachers, for sure. Those would be everyone's best friend. But from the student perspective, Jeff, it's obviously the principal Ah. because he's... Or she's, or they're your pal. Uh, Get it? Uh, principal? Pal, yes. Get PAL. Best See?
2: Not P L E, but P A L. Indeed.
3: Yes. Indeed. <laughs> and this story has to do with a principal pipeline program that is being funded by the Wallace Foundation. And uh, Denisa Superville for Ed Week wrote that the Wallace Foundation is spending millions on an effort to make principals more effective as a major lever, lever for improving student performance. A pilot program funded by the Wallace Foundation to strengthen the work of principals ran for several years across six large school districts, including New York City uh, Department of Ed, Charlotte, Denver, Gwinnett County in Georgia, Hillsborough County in Florida, Prince George's County in Maryland. All these districts serve between 65 to 95% students of color. The program saw gains in both reading and math and dramatic academic growth in the lowest performing schools where new principals were placed. Also, the program costs amounted to less than 0.5% of the district budget, making it highly affordable and impactful. So Jeff, this principal pipeline program, it looks like they were able to boost reading and math scores by supporting particular principals in particular schools. Help me understand that. You are the professional principal, the uh, dopest principal that I know, and um, I don't know much about principals besides the fact that they are uh, largely overworked um, in the schools I worked at. So help me understand this principal pipeline program and why it was looks like successful.
2: Well, thank you for your kind words, Dr. Rustin. Um, So I'm really glad we chose to focus on this story. And uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, on first look, mm-hmm. uh, my assessment of this principal pipeline uh, initiative from the Wallace Foundation that these districts have taken on, mm-hmm. all of which are like, these are big urban districts. So people might not know Gwinnett County, Georgia is like right outside of Atlanta. Hillsborough um, County, Florida is basically Tampa. Right. So these mm-hmm. are big urban area districts. Right. Right. Um, and. Uh, on first look what they're doing seems to be the stuff that's like well aren't most districts like kind of doing these things in in, in some capacity or another right so here are the the kind of uh components of the pipeline initiative that they were that they implemented one was creating a revised set of leadership standards that uh, were used to align uh, pre-service preparation for school leaders, the hiring process, evaluation, and then ongoing support, right, coaching and support. Um, two, they um, created partnerships with pre-service programs like at universities or sometimes a district might run their own um, to uh, to revise those programs and kind of align them to what the district wants and is looking for. Um, three, they refined the hiring and placement processes to be more strategic. Uh, Four, they refined the evaluation process so that it better aligned with um, the on the job supports that principals were getting. And last but not least, they developed something called a leader tracking system, which is essentially like a data system that's tracking sort of indicators of success or likely success as a school leader so things like you know survey data about how good of a job you're doing from teachers or students or that kind of thing um student outcome data you know related to your work things of that nature so on a certain level i'm like these are not like this is not you know new innovative stuff right right. they're doing right i think what's interesting is the coherence that they're bringing to these aspects of a district that often work totally incoherently right Mm -hmm. so like what hr is doing to like fill vacancies or principals might be just about like, how do we most efficiently recruit and hire people, right? And what the, um, you know, the principal managers in the field might be doing is like, well, how do I make sure that my principals are following the rules and not exposing the district to undue risk um, and liability and like, right. you know, they're checking off all the boxes, right. Um, And that's the district's data systems might just be like, well, how do we report all the data we need to report to the federal government so we are in compliance with Title One or those kind of things. Um, And It looks like what they're doing is actually just saying, hey, we need to bring coherence to all these things so that we are focused on a set of leadership skills and capacities that are high leverage and that we need and want in our district. And we need to align everything around helping people get good at those things and supporting them. Right. And so I think that's the the perhaps sadly more innovative aspect of yeah. what they're doing here is like helping the district operate coherently to recruit retain develop successful leaders right um and they're seeing significant gains which which is exciting
3: yeah that sounds dope i mean um be- uh, thanks for breaking that down it definitely sounds at, at first when i uh, read about this i was thinking well isn't that kind of common sense shouldn't you always be doing that but like you said um it's not something that's being done with this level of coherence um, and clarity. And uh, independent analysis of the program by the RAND Corporation found that schools that got new principals while the districts were in this program outperformed other schools in their states that weren't in this program by 6.22 percentage points in reading and 2.87 percentile points in math uh, three years in. So we're looking at boosts or gains in reading and math through at schools that had principals who are part of this program, which I think as a classroom teacher is just another reminder that when we look at test scores and we think about um, how students are performing, there's so much more that goes into it than yeah. merely the curriculum or this particular teaching practice or, or what. there's so many variables behind those reading and math scores. And this is just another reminder, like even principal and what uh, the principal or how the principal is being supported, has this much of an impact and then you go back to our previous story about uh, houseless students and and what kind of impact that has it's just so much that goes into those scores and for me as a classroom teacher it's just another reminder that uh, those scores are are much much more goes into them than simply what i did with that particular class that year
2: i i would agree with that i would even add that to me one of the most exciting findings from this study is that the gains were actually the greatest in the schools that had been the lowest performing schools Mm. historically right so Mm. this is not just a program that's like you know taking principles and putting them in the higher performing schools and right, then they right. get even better right this is having the greatest impact where the need is the greatest which is exactly like that's, yeah. that's what we need to be all about right um so it's exciting um you know maybe not like revolutionary in, right, right. in its component parts but the result uh could could be moving nope. in that direction which is great so shout out to the uh to the wallace foundation and shout out to these yeah. six districts doing some interesting stuff
3: And uh, we're not sponsored by them, but uh, Wallace Foundation, if you're looking to be the first sponsor of all the above, then, uh, you know, hit us up.
2: Dream big, folks. Dream Dream big. big. Dream
3: big. (laughs) Um, All right, folks. That's it for today's Do Now. And up next, we will have our seminar discussion about teacher professional development. Stay tuned. Alright folks, welcome to today's seminar. Today we'll be discussing teacher professional development and we brought two dope guests who are experts in the realm of professional professional development to help us understand the complexities behind it. Alright, so up first we have Dr. Mark Jutaba. Hello Mark. Hello. Mark is a school improvement facilitator with the Comprehensive School Assistance Program at WestEd, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit research development and service agency that works with education in other communities throughout the United States. Mark partners with states, districts, and schools to coordinate and deliver research-based professional development and coaching services in mathematics and English language learning. He currently leads West Ed's efforts with teacher practice teams, a problem-solving process to sustain solutions for site-based math challenges. Mark has created and supported the design of district, school, and classroom-level curriculum and assessments aligned to the Common Core State Standards, ELD, NGSS, and Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium protocols for over 100 public and charter schools and districts from New York to LAUSD and several points in between. Mark holds a doctorate in educational leadership from UCLA, which is the number one public university in the world. Did you know that, Jeff. <laughs> I <Did> just <you know laughs> want to make sure
2: Seventeen hundredth time on this yes. show. I have been just want to make sure about UCLA and I got love for UCLA. I respect it, but, um, you know, Harvard's not bad either. It's not bad, but it's not UCLA. I see how you've turned your allegiance though. So that's cool. Hey,
3: undergrad and doctorate. What could I say? Same for Mark. Fellow Bruin in the house. Welcome Mark to all of the above.
2: Thank you. All right. And it is my distinct pleasure to welcome uh, to my right here, Karen Rinder-Connect. Uh Karen, in addition to being um, a, a wonderful colleague of mine, um, is the senior director of School Transformation for Literacy at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. Uh, over the last 18 years, Karen has held a wide variety of roles educating students, teachers, and school leaders with a focus on the effective implementation of standards-aligned instruction. She started her career as a high school English teacher in New York City and has also taught here in Los Angeles uh, in public and charter high schools for seven years. Karen left the classroom to join the Achievement Network, an organization serving high-need schools across 20 states, where she focused on helping teachers and school leaders more effectively use data to improve student learning outcomes. Since 2013, she has held the literacy, or excuse me, she has led the literacy team, Um, she also holds them with great love, Uh, (laughs) the literacy team at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, uh, supporting teachers and school leaders across 18 district schools. She is an instructor for Unbound Ed's Standards Institute, where she is fresh back from in Orlando, Um, and she helps educators from across the country learn how to build more equitable literacy practices in classrooms. She is also a proud mother of two lovely children Welcome, Karen, to all of the above. Thank you. Yeah, uh, and welcome, Mark, as well. Thank you. Um, so we're here to talk about professional development, and it was uh, it was several episodes ago when, in an unrelated story, Manuel brought up um, a, you know a certain idea he was making, and he said. I don't want to say it's professional development and let out this, this sigh. There yes. was some mixture of depression and yes. stress and resentment. <laughs> yes. Yes. Embodied into a sound at just mentioning the word professional development. And uh, we said at that time, that's interesting. We should come back to that topic on a, on an upcoming episode. So I want to thank you both for joining us to talk about this, uh, this topic of professional development or PD as it's, better known by most educators um because this is i think one of those things in our profession where we spend a tremendous amount uh on professional development and we do so with the best of intentions we spend time we spend money we spend effort we bring in brilliant people like mark and karen uh to to help folks learn and grow and develop um and yet we maybe don't get the the results that um that we would hope for. So uh, a few years back in 2015, uh, TNTP did um, uh, a study or published a study that called the Mirage, which really examined professional development and its its impacts nationally. And that study showed that um, spending nationally on professional development is estimated to amount to somewhere around $18 billion annually. So if we imagine that that spending has likely only gone up a bit, uh, since 2015 that is a massive investment um, and I think it's fair to say we get mixed results from that at, at best um, why do we spend so much on professional development and why isn't it working as well as we want so that those two easy questions we'll start <laughs> off with <laughs> and maybe I'll, I'll start with you Karen um, why do we spend so much why aren't we getting the results we want
0: so I think there's two kind of basic reasons for why we spend so much. Uh, one is that we don't we aren't getting the outcomes that we, we want for our students. And so the idea behind it is that if we train people, right, to, to do better or do things differently, then we'll get the outcomes we need. So I think it's it's a Band-Aid approach to fixing some bigger problems. Um, I think the other reason why we spend so much additionally is because structurally schools are not set up for learning right and collaboration to work during the traditional school year or the traditional school day. right? So most uh, schools, at least, and I can speak to LA Unified specifically, teachers have very, very little time to actually collaborate, uh, to learn together, to plan together. They come, they come to school one day right? before the school year starts, so they have one day to actually get things together and, and work with one another and figure things out. They have a very limited amount of time during the school year, I think it's like 14 days for an hour or something. So if there is any kind of learning or practice or anything that that we want to happen with with teachers or with educators, we have to do that outside of or in place of the, the time that we have, right? And so that costs a lot of money. So I think there are some structural issues uh, that lead to a lot of spending. And I think there are there are some things that we are trying to fix, right, through professional development uh, that may not, we may not be approaching it in the right way. But that's the, the big goal behind
1: it. 100%, agreed. <laughs> um, in, in my travels, why we spend so much is typically on materials uh, and or personnel. Uh, sometimes uh, districts need to cover a position for an internal professional development capacity. So now you're including salary and benefits Um, in addition to materials for teachers, times X amount of teachers at a site or a district, so that cost significantly increases.
3: Yeah, well, as a classroom teacher, I've sat in a number (laughs) of professional development sessions, and I can tell you from my personal experience, teachers, um, I guess the, the typical experience would be teachers on their phones, just like we tell students not to be grading papers, in other words, doing work for another class that they're not supposed to be at that moment or simply just sort of just being passive listeners to whatever's being presented. But that's just at my school site in my context. You guys have, have each worked at a lot or have a, a much broader experience. Um, what would you say is the typical experience for teachers in professional development?
1: I'll take it. Um, <laughs> Manuel, to your point, the mindset issue, um, in, in most cases, it's, it's a compliance mindset from the teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm here because I've done something wrong. So I'm being told what that mistake may be and here's how it, it'll get fixed. Um, that typically lends itself to that, that passive attitude. Uh, in terms of the typical experience, um, I see it in tiers. So one tier is a information, uh, pr- providing information of a new service, of a new district initiative, of a new site initiative where it's, you know, sit and get one and done and you're out. And your other PDs are more to sustain some type of uh, site-wide initiative like a PLC or a new reading initiative or a math program. And the the experience, again, is what level of buy-in contribution does that teacher have? If it's something they're passionate about, I've seen it where they're more invested into the work and there's more or higher percentage or probability of it being sustained. If the teacher is not into it, then you're going to see the behaviors that you mentioned.
2: So, you know, I think what's interesting about uh, what you, about your experience, Manuel and Mark, your response is kind of this idea of um, You know, teachers having a lot of really negative experiences in professional development, right? Um, Some of that perhaps being the result, like maybe there's kind of a chicken and egg phenomenon of like, I'm resistant to this, so I'm making it not a good learning experience. But some of it being, you know, the sort of endless carousel of new reforms that comes through and, um, you know. Mediocre at best facilitation, sometimes from the principal who <laughs> you know might get up and not have really prepared, or a, another colleague who uh, might have you know not had a lot of time to to put into to getting ready to deliver this learning experience. Um, but whatever the source is, being in this situation where we have mediocre quality learning experiences, not enough time, like you uh, said, Karen, and then an audience that's kind of like. Whatever it is we're talking about, it's just the new flavor of the month. I'm just going to grade my papers and, you know, yeah. be on my phone and wait till 3.52 when I can walk out the door. I mean,
3: for the for the record, I just want to go on record if my administrator is listening or watching. <laughs> I am always fully, fully engaged <laughs> in <with> professional development. <laughs> sure. I do not grade. I do not look at my phone. I am fully there you you
2: retract your previous statement is that that that's what what other teachers do (laughs) other uh, teachers not me though other teachers not me yeah just wanted to clarify um no but i you know i've certainly seen similar situations right and and actually been in a situation as a facilitator where people are like wow this thanks for this not sucking today right um Mm -hmm. and so uh so i'm wondering karen maybe if you can talk to us a bit about like what does work um in professional development and what are some of the things that like get us out of this chicken and egg Mm -hmm. phenomenon that I was describing?
0: Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think Mark mentioned it. I think the biggest uh, hurdle to get over is first to have buy-in and investment, right? So I think there has to be, among the, the group of people that you're working with, a shared understanding of why we're doing this. There has to be investment in the need to do it, right? So I think one of the challenges with professional development is sometimes we, it's like we pick from a menu of things and there isn't actually like, do we need that? Is that, Is that—is that a problem that we actually have that we need to address? So I think there has to be an identified or a shared idea of kind of why we're doing this, right? The importance behind it, this is actually a need and this is something that's gonna be applicable to me tomorrow or next week right Right away. Um, so, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing I think in, in terms of what uh, people experience right through the process of professional development um, I think there sometimes is some information right it's helpful to have a research base to go to right to have some examples some proof points etc again to underline why we're doing this. Um, And then I think people need opportunities to practice, right? I have to learn about this. I have to try it on. I need to be able to collaborate with someone, right? And really make sense of it. And then I think It also needs to be applicable to whatever the particular content is that someone's working with, right? I think we often also have professional development around things that operate in the abstract, like a strategy, right? Then it's like learning grammar out of context, kind of, right? Like I understand this conceptually, and yet I'm not really sure how to make this work with the text that I need to read tomorrow or maybe the math concept, right? right. That I'm introducing to students next week. Um, So I think it needs to be really relevant and meaningful to what I actually have to do over the next several days. And then I need opportunities like over time to practice, to get feedback, Mm -hmm. to revisit it. So Mm -hmm. this idea of a kind of sit for two hours and get something, which is generally not enough time to do all the things I talked about anyway, right? Um, But it really is something that needs to happen over time um, beyond... The, the, the couple of hours that we're maybe learning about something and initially trying it on.
2: Yeah. And get something that is often like, let's work on these really hard things <laughs> to get <laughs> yeah. good at, right? For two hours and then go right. do them. And we checked it off the PD plan right. and we're, we're and good next month
0: we're moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Right. Cause you all got it. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so that... we've
2: covered reading mm-hmm. check. Now yeah. we're moving on to math. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, uh, mark i'm actually wondering if we can go a little bit deeper down that kind of same uh same path with you because something that i sometimes hear from folks about um you know that is challenging in professional development experiences is this idea that like there's external people who come in and do it to us and don't understand our kids or our community or whatever and i can i you know correct me if i'm wrong but i can imagine that you have encountered that Mm -hmm. uh in your you know in your extensive work um, so how, how do you sort of navigate that, right? That potential reaction from folks and, and, you know, maybe try to get to the place of like authentic, meaningful conversations about practice and not just like the guy who's coming in to do something to us.
1: Right. So hundred percent to Karen's point, exactly where it works best is authentic teacher contribution. They see themselves in whatever program is being presented to them. If, if they're not, if their heart isn't into it, you're, you're you're done. Right. For me as an external provider, uh, that's always a big hurdle. Again, I'm the teacher. We've done something wrong. Someone's brought in someone else to tell us how to fix it. I'm not a good person. Uh, so in my line of work, how do we address that? It's no, we really try and ground the work in your experience. What is your reality? Who are your kids? I can't tell you how many times I've heard, great, but those aren't my students. So where I've seen success is, well, let's talk about your students in this work. Then we start to get to see the more authentic contributions and buy-in. Oh, this is how it will apply to to, to me tomorrow, right? Um, if if I do my job correctly, I'm just providing options and a way to think for teachers. It's on them to take that and carry,
3: carry it forward. Hmm. All right, now, so those are a lot of, you each touched on things that help make uh, PD much more effective in terms of teacher buy-in and them feeling that it actually does connect with who they are and who their students are. What are some common PD practices that you see that clearly simply just do not work?
0: Talking at people Mm. for extended periods of time, like reading from slides, right? Yeah. Clicking through, I think, I, I mean, I would equate it to a classroom in a lot of ways, right? If if you don't have, again, kind of people talking about something, thinking about something, trying it on, asking questions, right? Like if there isn't time to actually process and to do, then I think PD is is generally ineffective.
2: Karen, are you trying to tell me that uh, my my 12-point font with uh, 36 bullet points on, on my slide that I just read yeah. to a room full of people mm-hmm. that that's not effective? Is that, yes. that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. Well, it
3: helps if you attach a, a really big binder <laughs> yeah. to it to yeah, deliver yeah. to... Yeah, yeah yes. the bigger the binder, the more... The bigger the binder. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, to add on what doesn't work, the one and dones mm-hmm. rarely, if any, um, sustain the work. Where it does, it's, beca- it's only because there's already systems in place. There's a culture back at whatever site to, to move that work forward, right? Uh, where it doesn't work, again, if the teacher doesn't see themselves in the work, it's, it's not gonna happen. And Karen mentioned it, the ability to tinker, to iterate, to get real-time feedback and adjust my practice without fear of evaluation or something that will happen if I don't do it correctly.
2: That's where it won't work, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because I think the um, we often think of PD as being like a thing that happens in isolation from the rest of the work. Right. Which is which is maybe the the first brick in the in like the wall of ineffectiveness Mm -hmm. (laughs) of professional development. But uh, I'm wondering if actually we can hear from you both about. Uh, like, like, what are the what are those aspects of a system around the professional development that happens that actually enables uh, it to be effective? The the culture that you named, um, like, what are what are the things that you've seen that are a part of that culture that make for professional development that that works right and that feels good to people who are involved? Well, I'm sure,
1: I'll go. Okay. So when we talk about systems, um, I tend to talk function, not form, right? PLCs, learning walks, lesson studies, those are a form. The function they serve is some system to gather real-time data to address a gap, a problem. So PD that works is a, a, a school that has a system in place to develop learning in teachers. So what are all those various systems? What systems do you have to gather data? that informs the cap? What systems do you have around communications uh, to disseminate information, to gather information, to give feedback to teachers, between uh, teachers and administration and support staff? Um, If those are in place, I tend to see PD be more successful.
0: Yeah, I I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I would agree. I mean, I think the, the first Thing you have to have in place is is a means of collecting information about what what is what is not working, and do we all agree, right, that that's not working, and that this is a problem we need to solve, right? So some collective um, buy-in. So you need you need bodies that do that work, right? You need teams of teachers that are thinking about what are the goal, what are the outcomes we want to see. If we're not seeing those okay what are some things we might do to address that right or an instructional leadership team right who has goals for a school and they, they have the opportunity to say you know we're not meeting these goals let's collect some data to get some better information on why we're not meeting those goals and then now let's think through what would we design, right? What learning do we need to do or or what additional practice or feedback or supports, right, do we need to put in place? Um, I think it's also rethinking the like the structures around PD, right, which is often, oh, we all come together on Tuesday afternoon and we sit and listen to somebody. Um, and so, again, thinking about what's the time, how do we um, allocate time over time, right? How do we break that up? So we break also learning up into bite-sized pieces, right, create lots of space for people to process, to collaborate, to try out, to, to bring, to kind of check in, like, how are things going? So I think there are a lot of structures around, like, planning longer term also beyond a single PD um, and thinking about who are the people who are going to be involved, who's mm-hmm. going to manage it, right? Um, how are we going to check in on it? So there's a lot of meetings that have to be set up and, and actual time for people to do the work.
1: And if I could add on one more thing, the needs of the teacher have to be taken into consideration. Uh, Where I've had success in this work is the solution to whatever problem comes from the teacher. So we value their expertise, their knowledge as an educator. So we bring all that into the solution process. You've been trained. You have experience. What do you think you would want to do given our problem? Right. And It's scary for teachers, but it's also uh, empowering, right? Oh, you really care what I think, you really care what I bring to the table versus you've done something wrong, do this thing,
3: and we'll be in next week to evaluate. Mm
2: -hmm. All
3: right, so now as a teacher, I've been in the profession for, this is my 16th year now in the classroom, and I gotta say most of the PD that I've experienced has been geared towards testing Testing and curriculum. So when we brought up the topic of PD a few episodes ago, we were talking about suspensions. And I think I said something about how, as a teacher, I know there are, there are many, many ways I could address a student's needs without grabbing, reaching for that referral and, and kicking them out. And I, I might have mentioned something about, like, maybe we need more PD around that. Um, and I was thinking the reason I had that negative reaction is because when I thought of PD, I thought of what you uh, referenced earlier, Karen, is like Band-Aid solutions, and when I think of PD, I also think testing and curriculum, and Jeff mentioned the TMTP report earlier on that cited $16 billion, something like that, being spent on PD, and as a teacher, I got to say there is a concern that a lot of the folks getting that money for PD are, have relationships with the companies who are providing the tests and with the stakeholders who are pushing for tests and just that whole fear over this testing industrial complex, draining our resources when we could be talking about things like suspensions, culturally responsive pedagogy, all these other things. Um, so in your experience, what have you seen as the impact that test the focus on testing your curriculum has had on PD and on whether or not... Teaching practice is being shifted based on that. It's a deep question. It is. We only ask the deep questions yes. about the above.
1: <laughs> so, in, in terms of testing, I, I see value in it only in the sense that it would be helpful for the teachers to understand the interface. Right. So, given right. Smarter Balance, given the CASP test, it would make sense to give development on how to how to help teachers teach students how to interface with this assessment. Right. That makes sense. When we get into curriculum. I think we need to fundamentally redefine the word curriculum. A textbook is not a curriculum. It is simply a resource. So right. professional development for curriculum, 100%, that to support what is taught and learned. A textbook is, is just in service of that process, right? Where professional development to support a teacher in identifying tinkering and developing how they introduce material, how they help students move through the material and beyond the material—that's where the focus should be.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think that you know, in the network of schools that we support, we do spend time with teachers um, thinking about assessment and thinking about curriculum. And I think that I think we've actually had some success in both areas, but but for two reasons: one, where there's again investment in the whatever the assessments are telling us right like if our end goal is to know whether our students are have mastered their letter sounds right by you know the middle of kindergarten, it's very valuable to have some assessment data right to be able mm-hmm. to take a look at and to think about okay which of my which among my kiddos have not have not mastered these sound spelling combinations and then what additional support do they need? And I think you can apply that up um, if you think about what, the assessments are telling you and how to use that information, again, with that goal of of student learning, right, in mind. Um, So I think that uh, PD or supports around how to think through kind of how do I interpret these outcomes and then really use them to support student learning Mm -hmm. when there's buy-in, I think have been effective and helpful for teachers um, because there's a lot of testing right and so i think it's also helpful to help people think about well what what do i need to pay attention to what can i use in my classroom and what what is is not as maybe part of this kind of bigger system that right now it, it is the way things are and and i don't need to live there um i think around curriculum similarly right it's where i've seen PD around curriculum be really helpful is when teachers are able to like spend time with the resources also understand like why are we using these resources right if you are working with teachers who are like I don't like this textbook I don't believe in what this is doing then forget it right um but if you have if you have a really high quality curriculum that supports students with accessing my background is literacy right so i'm living in like texts and tasks right Uh and and so thinking about how are we really you know building knowledge around particular topics through texts and how does this curriculum work to help do that right so really understanding curriculum design in a way and where you Uh have a true curriculum versus right. a textbook, which is missing all of those pieces. Um, but then I think most importantly that connection with who are the students in my classroom, right? And what do I need to do as an educator to design instruction that supports my students in really accessing these texts or accessing these tasks and thinking about these, you know, big meaty critical questions, right? That we want them to grapple with and write about and come up with ideas around. So it's less around the, the curriculum and more yeah. around actual instruction, right? Like, how do we really make this be meaningful for students in our classroom? And it happens over time, too, sure. right? Like, yeah. especially when there's something new, right? And there's a lot of fear, I think, sometimes that, like, I have to do it perfect on day one, and that's mm-hmm. that's not going to happen either. So I think we also have to have a lot of kind of grace and, um, and support people through a process versus dropping a book and saying we expect this to we expect to see this next Wednesday, right? You're going right. to be on lesson 5.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. F, but we F4 but we compliance. covered reading last
2: month, Karen. <laughs> exactly. Yes. The kids right. should yeah. be reading right. now. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Mark. What, what were you
1: going to say? I was 100% the teachers being able to work without fear of repercussion or consequence. Mm. Knowing what we expect from our students We know they're not going to get it right off the bat the first time. So why would we expect the same from our teachers? So again, professional development where a teacher is allowed or given the freedom to tinker, to make mistakes and get feedback, to get better. Because at the end of the day, that's what we want for our teachers
2: so that they will be better for our students. So, you know, there's so many things that have come up for me in today's conversation that I think actually get to, just on a personal level, my... My kind of like orientation and philosophy around professional development uh, that I that I had as a teacher and certainly had as a principal, which is, in general, I am I have been a person who is highly skeptical of external PD um, as as a major driver of change um, in a school. Apart from things where like there's a critical mass of staff who are who have like identified something we want to go out and get and are like we should go to that place to go get it right. Um, and I think there's kind of these like different paradigms of what PD is and how it should function. The dominant one as I see it being like we have, uh, you know, we bring all the teachers together or subsets of teachers together. We deliver some content. We let them engage with the content. And then we expect them to go implement that. Right. Um, and then there's more of your kind of um, at least as I was kind of trained as, a, as an educator that kind of like. DuFourian PLC process, right? Which is, um, we organize people in teams. Those teams identify the critical components of what they are trying to get kids to learn, of course, informed by standards and research and other things. But, um, but then it is a the, the core function of the team to go through these iterative processes of getting better at doing that work. Most of which is going to be done by the people in the room, right? Um, and it, we will seek out external inputs when and and how they're important and relevant to to the work, and we will be held accountable using. And this is Manuel's favorite part of the equation: standardized testing, right, which tells us on some comparison level, like, <laughs> "Hey, are we being as effective yes. at what we think we're doing as you know as as we want to be?" Um, so. I think what I'm interested—that that was a really long-winded question. That's not a question. So let me let me try to be a better moderator here on on this uh, seminar discussion. I think what I'm what I'm interested in hearing from the both of you is, um, do you agree with that kind of like you know these are the competing paradigms of PD, um, and um, would you agree with the assessment that maybe the the dominant paradigm, at least as I framed it, is flawed in this way? And if so, what should we do about it? Um, so, Karen, maybe I'll start with you. Oh, man.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think I'm that like, well uh, said. We, we only ask the hard questions. Yeah. You have 25 seconds to respond. Go.
0: Yes. Um, so I think fundamentally I agree with you. So maybe we can start there, right? I think there is far more power in a group of individuals working towards collective goals and iterating on how to get there, right? Identifying this is a need we have, let's figure out what supports we need. Is there an expert we need to bring in, right? Do we need to do some professional reading? Do we need to go back to the research? Now let's try that out, right? So I think um, I think you're gonna see a lot more impact, right? When you have, a group of committed people working together to problem solve around particular student outcomes. Um, I think they're one of the challenges we have in that, why that's not working or why that's not in place everywhere for a number of reasons, but I know in California, again, it comes back to how the school day is structured, right? So creating time and space for that kind of learning to happen. Resources, right, are also potentially limited. Like, let's say we're a team and we decide, like, we need this kind of learning. And, well, that kind of learning might cost a lot of money, right? Like, that person might be expensive or that experience, right? So I think there are restrictions there. Um, And then I think, unfortunately, I'm not sure that in education right now we – work to build those kinds of cultures within school buildings enough, right? I don't think that, um, you know, I know in many of the buildings that that I work with currently, the, the teams of teachers who trust one another to do that work together, it's not there yet. And I don't think as a school body, we're investing enough time in building those kinds of relationships and and that kind of trust. Um, There's still a lot of educators working in silos. um, And like what I do in my room is best for what's my student for my students. And I don't care what you do over there. Right. And so I think until we build some more shared responsibility for the outcomes of our kids, we we aren't going to move towards more bodies you know working together collectively um and it's harder in some ways to to manage right like also from a school administrator's perspective like it's a lot easier for me to just bring everyone together on tuesday give them some information and and Mm. hope that that they do that so i think there are some structures right now competing with with what you yeah yeah put forth yeah
2: i think structures is 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 the right word i I wouldn't go as far as to say like there are aspects of all the like um Collective bargaining agreements that I'm familiar with, which Mm -hmm. is primarily LA and New York, that's that actually set up like real structural barriers to what you're talking about, and that there might be reasons for that, right? Like, hey, teachers are underpaid, and so you Mm -hmm. want us to work more time, you need to pay us more, and I'm fully in support of that. Um, But nonetheless, the like, you know, when I was in New York, it was literally 37 and a half minutes at one point in time, and I was like, what are we doing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) talking about? half minutes mm-hmm. in our contract. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it gets down to that point of, like, what can we really accomplish in 37 and a half minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yeah, the the structural barriers that create that kind of culture or reinforce it um, are, are significant, yeah. Uh,
1: to add, the structure of a PLC, sure. The structure of department meetings, I'm all for it. But if all they're going to serve is a form, you won't. It won't get it any better. To what function do the PLCs serve? These these articulate the thirty-seven and a half minutes. What do you do in that time? Right? Can can make or break your improvement efforts or your development efforts. Um, to Karen's point, a hundred percent shared vision. If all the teachers on that team are bought in, it will work. Because the team will come up with something to move the work forward. They will find the gap. They will find the solution. And the team, when given the time and the space and the freedom to tinker, they'll work through um, individually what will impact their own day-to-day teaching.
3: All right. Well, I think like all good PD based on what you've each shared. Um, This is something that cannot just be a one-off, Jeff. This is something that has to be revisited over time i think so i think so but this was good part one you this know, is a good part one wet the appetite there you go get yeah the,
2: get the creative juices flowing indeed. yes indeed. next time we'll solve professional development
3: yes we'll so because we only take we only need like two sessions two sessions three. easy maybe three the budget yeah. allows for three yeah. three well, sessions and we have to
2: spend fixed. the funds by june yeah june we do 15, otherwise we right. lose them Gotta and get they don't them. roll over yeah. so mm-hmm.
3: yeah indeed well thank you each for for uh, being here and being part of this discussion. Now, um, folks, if you're watching this on YouTube or listening on the go, do know that we will have one-on-one interviews with each of our guests uh, to learn more about their particular path to, um, in, to their current roles. But also, I, Jeff, I'm, I'm curious, since they've each been the external provider at some point facing practicing teachers. I am curious if they have started off their work like so many other external providers have started off in front of me, which is to say, hey, I was a classroom teacher. I still feel like I'm a classroom teacher. I'm one of you. There's there's like a whole thing that external providers do. And I'm curious what they say to the teachers in front of them when they are presenting. So we're going to save that for the one-on-one, uh, one-on-one discussions because uh, I, I suspect that they also let the teachers know that they were classroom teachers and that they understand, which is true and honest however as a teacher i have thoughts on that all right so one-on-ones on on our youtube channel head over there youtube.com slash all of the above to hear more about their journey and to hear how they start off their professional development sessions when they have had uh teachers in front of them kind of wondering what this is all about all right any last words jeff
2: uh thank you Mark, Indeed. Thank you, Karen, for joining us today. Uh, great discussion. And I think I would agree there's there's still more to uh, more dots to connect here, more things to unpack. So uh, perhaps a further discussion down the road.
3: Indeed. All right, folks, up next will be our class dismiss where we take a look at folks doing excellent things in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismiss, where we like to give shout-outs to people doing great things in the field of education. Jeff, who do we have today?
2: Well, Manuel, uh, I'm I'm excited for today's uh, Class dismiss because, you know, it's, it's the end of February. Black History Month uh, is coming to a close. Indeed. 2020 is one of those uh, wonderful years where the... Um, the equity gap between days of Black History Month and days of other months <laughs> closes just a little by a day with that 29th day. Indeed. Uh, so we'll, so we'll take it. And, uh, in honor of Black History Month, we want to shout out a school, um, all the way from the Bronx shout out to all my people in the BX. Bronx, uh, BX in the house, um, that's doing some really exciting things around celebrating black history. And I think lots of schools across the country do all kinds of stuff, right? Readings and performances and assemblies and that stuff is great. But this school took a particularly unique approach. And this school is called leaders of tomorrow middle school. It's on the Richard R green campus in the Williamsburg section of the Bronx. Um, And they really took an approach of creating Uh, a museum throughout their entire school so all Hmm. of the hallways in the school were just covered in Black History Month images and exhibits with different themes in each hallway so they have like a you know um Leaders of perseverance uh, section, and they have a section on Martin Luther King's life and legacy, and a section on you know black hip hop artists, and a section on black Wall Street, and oh, dope. all yeah, all different kinds of stuff spread throughout the school. Um, they were featured recently on uh, CBS two. Uh, with a little special in uh, in New York dope. City um, featuring one of their teachers, a guy named Barry Curtis. So we want to give a shout out to uh, to him and all of the staff um, at Leaders of Tomorrow Middle School that I think did something really great, really noteworthy and, and maybe something that other schools might try to emulate, uh, you know, next year or next time around when we, uh, you know, really want to do something special to celebrate the contributions nice. of, of black folks in American history.
3: That's dope. That's dope. I always appreciate a nice, responsible black history month celebration at a school because too often you hear about, um, some really problematic stuff. Yeah, as people try to uh, cover so-called Black history. So that's dope. Shout out to uh, that school in the Bronx. Um, thank you for tuning in. If you are watching this on YouTube and if you've enjoyed what you've seen, please uh, what did what did the young people say? Smash that subscribe button. Um, do that, and we would very much appreciate it. And of course, if you listen to this podcast on the go, um, please consider rating us or reviewing us because that makes a big difference, and that would be very helpful for us all right so thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time